Good morning, everyone. Junior Church, you are dismissed to walk four years old through fourth grade. It's so good to see all of you here except for one person, okay? Uh, just one person. Get up here. Somebody thought it would be great to wear a pizza shirt and then sit in the front row because according to Croc, it might help my sermon be shorter. There you go. I'm not going to have to stare at it then. Um, there's a lot going on in the back table. If you want to check, um, if you need to sign up for the harvest dinner, please do that uh, so we can make sure we have enough. Also back there is a voter's guide. We have these out there. If you need more, you can print these off online as well. Um, but this is just to help you make a conscious effort and decision in who you would like to vote for. Also, most people uh, know this, but I just want to remind everyone that you can follow along on the sermon on the Bible app or the version, uh, depending on how you call it. Everything that's on the screen, sometimes even more, is on there as well, and then you can save it to your um, profile there and use it later on. It is official. It is Christmas season, right? Whoa. You know how to make a church upset? Apparently you say Christmas before it's Thanksgiving. It is here whether we like it or not, okay? There's already decorations up. Uh, people are already planning activities. Some people have already started sending out invites to their Thanksgiving or their Christmas dinners. Do you know invitations have changed throughout the years? Um, first, invitations were sent by messenger. And so this person would show up at your house and give you a verbal invitation and then wait for your reply so they could take it back to the host. Um, eventually, then, the messenger just handed out a message and then would wait for you to write it. That way, the, the messenger didn't know any of the details, and it was a little more private that way. Then the postal service came out, and all the messengers were fired, and they we're able to send these invitations, and there was RSVPs, you know, they want to make sure you know. And just as much as the Postal Service changed invitations, so did the Internet. Because now instead of the snail mail, we can send it through email and other things like that. Invitations have been sent through the mail. They were uh, elaborate cards to a slip of paper, and now it's this animated little gift thing that says, you're invited and has sounds and motions and everything. You can also invite people through social media apps like Facebook and other things like that. We got invited to a fall party and we had to click, yes, we're coming. And the cool thing with this, uh, I think everybody should do this, when you invite someone through this uh, um, platform, I can see everybody that you've already invited and those who are coming. So I can sit there and go, yep, yep, oh, nope, we're not going now. And it makes it so nice to avoid circumstances, right? So the invitations have changed a lot. Well, did you know God has sent us invitations? Through the prophets, God invited people to come into relationship with him. Throughout the, the Bible, throughout scriptures, the writers, we can see God has given us invitations. And ultimately, we see the greatest invitation through Jesus himself. 
This month of November, we're going to focus a little bit more in the book of Psalms, and we're going to continue to look at that, but focus on the idea, the topic of worship. Worship has become something that happens at a particular time in a church service, but is that what really worship is? God longs for us to come into his presence. He's, he's not concerned about a, a laying down a bunch of rules or requirements. Uh, look what Jesus said in John 4. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, if you're really a staunch traditionalist, you know, somebody who's going to... God is looking for people who will worship at 10.05, and you'll wear these clothes, and you'll have this bulletin, and it can't deviate. It's got to have opening songs, scripture, three songs, communion, meditation, sermon, great reply of people, and then another song, and worship's over. But is that what worship is? Because that's not what Jesus said. If what Jesus says here on this scripture is true, that means God would have sent out invitations to each one of us about what true worship is like. And if he sends an invitation to each of us, he wants us to come without invitation. You and I have this invitation to come into the presence of God himself. We're going to be in Psalm 95 today. Let's look there. We're going to hit the first few verses here. Oh, come... Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make joyful noise to him with song of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. These first five verses really hold a lot. And we need to address something real first. The first word or first two words of verse one is come or oh come. And that really isn't a good translation. As I was looking into it, the Hebrew halak means to walk. Um, this should say something more like let's get going, let's move it. That's what that, that come means is get going. See, what is worship right here in the beginning? Worship is a journey. Worship is active. That means we respond to it. We choose to get going. Worship is not passive where you sit back and let it happen to you. With that, we should see the next two words that stand out to us. I've said it many times, and I'm going to keep saying it because it's worth repeating. If it's repeated... It's important. These two words are repeated four times in these first two verses. Let us. The psalmist is stating something, that worship is congregational. Let us go do this. We need to jump into this. We need to get moving into this. And it is a we, a plurality. While we can, I, I don't want to diminish individual worship throughout the week privately. That is very important to us. But there is a specific call, a direct invitation to worship corporately. Let all of us 
What else do we see here? It says, let us sing to the, what's it say, let us do? Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise with songs. These three of these let us here involve our voice, which means worship is vocal. Too many times we think that we can worship not only in private, but also silence. While at times we can worship God in our hearts, God is longing for us and actually inviting us to make a verbal, joyful, grateful sound to him. So far, I mean, look what worship is. It's active, it's congregational, it's vocal. And notice the adjectives of worship. They're joyful or thanksgiving. Worship then is vibrant and vigorous. It is supposed to be moving and loud. We are to participate with joyful, grateful praise. We are supposed to be exuberant in our worship. Someone has said that the characteristic note of Old Testament worship is exhilaration. When's the last time we thought worship time with God or for God was exhilarating? The terms employed here describe activity which seems more appropriate at a football game than what we usually think of in a church service. If you were at the the football game Friday night, our, our Blazers did a great job. Very proud of you guys for making it that far. Give them, there's a couple here. There's Garrett. Strong. Someone else? Okay. Was someone else? Connor? Oh, yeah, Connor. He's not here. But were the people sitting in the stands like this? Oh, that's too bad. Good job, guys. What? How were they? They were exhilarating, weren't they? They were into it. They were praiseful for everything going on. And we think that is distasteful for a church service, but it's totally okay for a football service. The the phrase here, sing for joy, should really be uh, translated shout for joy. It says make a joyful noise, which some of you are very happy about because we couldn't sing with such clarity and harmony as the two girls up here. But it doesn't say sing. It really says shout. We are told to shout aloud in the second half of the verse. And the Hebrew literal means raise a shout. It was generally done when anticipation before a battle. Can you imagine going before a battle cry and he says, what do we say? Yay. And that's what Jesus, what God is inviting us to be is to shout like a battle cry. Don't we want Satan to know that he's messed with the wrong army? Don't we want the rest of the world to know that we worship the true commander? Praise God. Not this little, but we don't typically think of shouting in worship. I, I got a real wake-up call to worship when I got to go to CIY um, with the high school. We'd go, now this was several years ago. Apparently I'm a little bit old, just ask the high schoolers. But there was like 2,000 teenagers, not including the, the sponsors, at the Anderson CIY we went to. 
And when they started singing and praising, they were clapping in the middle of the song. We had people who were raising their hand, and I was like, what's their question? And then they were shouting, hallelujah, and praise God. I'm like, have these people ever been to church? Because I was raised in a church that you don't do anything but sing the words, first verse, chorus, second verse, chorus, skip third for some reason, and go to fourth. And then we get there, and it's like excitement. And I was so thrilled with it. I'm like, this is the type of worship that I've always longed for, that I always thought was a sin. And yet God invites us to this. I will say, when it comes to our church here, we see this. We have little kids who are shouting out in praise and worship, and I love it. We have people who are raising their hands to it to glorify and honor God. We have young and old. We have Anita over there who will, she'll be over there moving and dancing a little bit as she's raising her hands to God. We see real worship here, and I'm thankful for that. This expression of shout, raise a shout, is actually used in Joshua 6.20. The Israelites were marching around the walls of Jericho. Same, same phrase, raise a shout. When the people heard the sound of the ram's horn, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. That's the same one where God just said in, in Psalms to shout for joy. 1 Samuel 4, 5, when we read about what happened with the Ark of the Covenant, brought into the camp. When all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant the, uh, um, of the Lord coming into town, their shout of joy was so loud it made the ground shake. Shouldn't that be every single corporate worship? When we see the presence of God come into the midst of the people, forget about the ground shaking. I want to see hell shake in fear. That's worship. I don't really know why our worship at times is not as vibrant and vigorous as we see in the Old Testament or in other places around the world. I don't know why mine is sometimes so somber. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's we've gotten into a rut. Maybe we're just not expressive in general, or maybe it's because we don't have much joy in our hearts. I'm not sure what all the reasons are, but I am personally challenged in this psalm to become a little bit louder. And yes, I can get louder. A little more exuberant and expressive, not for you, but because he deserves it. Why is it that we're often critical of others whose worship is too animated and enthusiastic? While there are extremes we should avoid, I'm not saying that I wouldn't see people doing cartwheels and flips around here, okay? It's not a gymnastic mat. We, we sometimes need to avoid those things, but very few of us come to being um, too passionate. Our tendency is to react against such worship. Much like uh, Michael disdained David, his wife, uh, Michael, David's leading the procession as the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem. He's gone and got it, and he's brought it back. And verse 14 says that he danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing just an ephod, which is his long johns, pretty much. 
And the whole thing, it was filled with shouts and shouts of trumpet. And when Michael, who was Saul's daughter, saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, it says she despised him in her heart. David responded to her by saying he was focused only on what the Lord, uh, focused only on the Lord, and he was expressing himself to God in worship. He didn't care what other people thought or saw. He was intent on fully engaging himself in full, wholehearted, full-body worship to God. I, I've actually listened to a sermon on that scripture where the preacher says Michael was the right one and David was the wrong. And I was like, are you kidding? But he, when I looked into it, he's one of those that you don't show emotion. And that got me back to how much joy is really in his life. We are to collectively express our worship vocally, vibrantly, in exuberance. And when we sing songs of praise, we should shout at an incredible volume. I don't care if you can sing on key. That's not what God's saying. Oswald Chamber puts it this way, A joyful spirit is the nature of God in my blood. Is the nature of God in your blood so much so that it has to get out and shout out? When God himself so penetrates our lives that we are consumed in the desire to worship him, we can't help but break out into joyful praise. That's what worship is. We cannot just get emotional or loud for our own sake. The focus of worship has got to be God-centered. Our focus should not be on how it makes me feel, how it makes us feel. Our worship, worship must be God-centered. It's got to be focused on God. Well, that one should be up there, but apparently I didn't put it in the outline, so it's not on there. Notice the first two words in this section. We are to sing for joy to the Lord. We are to shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come before him with thanksgiving. Praise him with music and song. David danced and shouted, but he did it before the Lord. If you come in here wanting to shout and sing for attention to you, you are not worshiping God. You are worshiping self. And you're really being a distraction, a hindrance to other people because you're calling attention to yourself and not giving it to God. We need to make sure our music is Christ-centric. I, I think Dustin has done a great job of going through some of the songs. There are some songs I really like, but don't worship God. And he said, we can't put this in our worship time corporately because it doesn't give glory and honor to God, so we'll set them aside. And he's picking songs on purpose that bring all of our thoughts, our focus, solely on God and Jesus. Instead of thinking about how happy we are together worshiping God, the psalmist here directly sings to God. How many of you know the song, If You're Happy and You Know It? That's not worship. It's a fun song. But it's all talking about me and my feelings. How many of you know the song, It Is Well? That's worship. Do you know the difference? If I'm happy, I know it. I'm going to dance and clap and look like this. Versus it is well, even though I am ripped from the, or I'm ripped in the pains of 
heartache, losing my daughters, in all the, the throes of this world, yet it is well with my soul because of God, my Savior. That's the difference. And so we need to have that. It needs to be God-centered, not feelings. Not only is worship supposed to be God-centered, but worship needs to be founded in truth. In verses 3 and 4, the sovereignty of God is given as the basis for this worship. Verse 3 expresses God's rule in general terms. For the Lord is great. He is the great God, the King above all other gods. And that's a lowercase g. That is not saying there are other gods out there. It's saying other things that people want to use as gods. That is saying we are to shout aloud, sing for joy, praise the Lord with music because he is supreme. That is the truth. The supremacy of God is the foundation of our joy, which then goes out in praise and worship. John Piper says it this way. We also believe that our joy shows the supremacy of God's value. If his greatness is the basis of our joy, then our joy is the evidence of his greatness. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If people want to know how great God is based on your joy, how great is God? How great would they say God is just by seeing the joy you have? In Him. If we are not joyful, if we don't respond to the first call to rejoice, then we are giving very bad evidence to the greatness of God. Verses 4 and 5 depict God's sovereignty more specifically. He is in control of all His creation, He's in charge of all that He created and possesses. It talks about the depths, the peaks, the sea, the dry land. This is total. He is over all things. He made it all. He's sovereign over all. In worship, we are invited to rejoice. Here's the word. In God. We are to rejoice in God. Through our collective, vocal, God-centered rejoicing that is founded in truth, we are invited, invited to come rejoice in Him. Not at Him. Not just for Him, but in the midst of Him. If you go to verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are His, the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Verse 6 in the first part of 7 gives us the second invitation, a call to reverence, to inviting us to have reverence. See, we're supposed to rejoice in God and have reverence for Him. As we sang earlier, we are called now to worship the Lord in His beauty and His holiness. And notice the change of tone in the enthusiastic, loud songs of joy and awe-inspired reverence to humility before God. We are called to move from praise to prostration. In verses 1 and 2, the worshippers stand in God's presence, shouting His praise. Now in verse 6, the worshiper falls on his face before God in a humbled silence. Worship involves both animated rejoicing and speechless reverence. Just as much as I was just hitting that we need to be loud and boisterous and joyful, we also need to come before God corporately where I can't even put it into words. 
And I have to fall down in the presence of His holiness because He is so awe-inspiring, so awesome, so awe-everything. I can't even shout it. I have to fall down in reverence. Not only has the mood changed here, so has the focus. In that first part, it was God the Creator, but here it is God the Redeemer and Savior. We are the flock under His care, the people of His pasture. He is the loving shepherd who pays close attention to us each personally. This should cause us to want to bow down and worship and kneel before the Lord our Maker. Bowing has actually shown to help you get in a better mindset for worship. Yes, it hurts your knees. But it hurt his hands and his feet. It's uncomfortable. But he had a pain in the side on the cross. And isn't my discomfort minimal compared to his great love and redeeming sacrifice? It helps us to accept our place before Him while acknowledging His place before us. Now, I do find it interesting that the call for rejoicing is based upon God's sovereignty as Creator first, okay, in the first part of the psalm, and then reverence for God as our Savior based on relationship. I, at first, when I was looking at that, that's reversed. I need to be looking at the relationship and then the Creator But I was wrong. It hit me. The deeper our relationship is with God, the more we have awe and reverence for who He is. And so I'm going to have more awe and reverence for Him as a Creator because of the relationship. And then guess what happens? Because I see that awe of how He has created and how He's made that, it makes me want to get in a deeper relationship. And the deeper I get, the more I want to bow down in His awesomeness. And we start seeing this cycle of spirit-driven humility and praise. It happens on a couple occasions with the disciples. One day after Jesus did a miracle by providing more fish than the fishermen knew what to do with, Luke 5, 8, Simon Peter saw this. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He saw the creation that, that Jesus just did, performing all this stuff, and then he fell down and says, You're holy. Get away. It awakened him to that. Experiencing God's caring hand in our lives should uh, introduce greater submission and reverence. And here I'm going to say a phrase. And it is not meant to kick, but it did sucker punch me a little. I didn't like this. I read this in a commentary and I had to include it. Those who have little reverence for God may also have little intimacy with him. If you don't have reverence for God, it's probably because you don't know who He is. And let that really sink in. There's a lot of people who are going to be on the the receiving line waiting to go into heaven, and Jesus is going to say, I don't know. Oh, but I went to church. I did these things. No, you didn't know me. You choose hell.
We need more intimacy, relationship. Now, before we move on to the final part of God's invitation, I want to make a point that our corporate worship services should always contain elements of both excessive rejoicing and contemplative reverence. When we grow and have to add a second service or if we're going to do different things, it will not be. I've seen other churches, when they start getting a second service, you know what they do? Well, we're going to make this one more of the praise and worship, and we're going to make this one more of the the solemn and reverent ones. We will not do that here, okay? It's not going to happen. Some people believe that a contemporary service is filled with emotional rejoicing and that the hymns or the old style is the best and only way. No. That is really worshiping our ideas then. And we're going to worship what God wants, and we're going to worship, or not what God wants, we're going to worship God and use whatever we can to do that. While it might be true in some other churches, the leadership of St. Joe is committed to have each of our collective worship services filled with praise, prostration, shouts, and silence, happiness, and holiness, rejoicing, and reverence. We are going to make sure that what we have here encompasses everything. Sometimes it's going to be a song I don't like. It's a good thing I'm not sitting on the throne. And we may sing a song you don't really care for. Maybe in that time you do the reverent silent part and focus on the salvation. And then when it comes to a song that really connects with you, shout it loud so that we can all do this together. Now let's move to the final part of this psalm. I see the the last part of verse 7 is really a transition. The last part says, Today, if you hear his voice. This concludes the first part of the psalm, and at the same time it serves as an introduction to the last invitation, which is a call to respond. We need to rejoice in God, have reverence for God, and respond to God. The message translation says it's this way. Drop everything and listen. Listen as he speaks and don't turn a deaf ear. I kind of like that. Let's make two general observations before we go to the rest of this chapter. First, there is another dramatic change of mood here. From the jubilant praise in the opening, now we come to a solemn warning that cannot be taken lightly. And second, there's a change in the speaker. First, it's let us, okay, it's all of us included. Um, Psalm is spoken, now we're hearing from God himself in the second, which is really interesting. Look at this. You rejoice in God, you have reverence for God, and you respond. How can you respond unless he speaks to you? And this is why he speaks to us. Let's start again at verse, uh, the end of 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my praise. Hallelujah. What a change in this psalm. It's the same psalm. The first half is joyful, praise-filled. The second, the invitation from God himself. And it's basically saying, do it the right way. 
If you're going to sum that up, don't mess it up. It is more than just coming together and singing. He wants us to live out, live out what we sing and say. That's why we look at our entire service here as corporate worship, not just the singing part. Part of worship is communion. Part of worship is actually the offering that you're putting in because you're saying, God, I trust you and I'm worshiping you with this resources. Part of the worship is actually when we communicate in fellowship with one another because we're honoring God in the relationship that we have. Worship is not songs. Part of worship is listening and responding just as much as when someone is up here preaching and you respond. God warns us against the danger of having a hard heart here, it says. He does this by using two illustrations of Israel's history. Specifically, God is referring to what happened when those who escaped Egypt failed to possess the land of Canaan. Massah and Meribah are not just geographical names, but are designated two evils, both which characterize the conduct of God's people who had hardened their own hearts. Massah is Hebrew word for test. Are we to test God? Meribah is derived from the word of strife or contention. They cause strife or contention of God. Exodus 17 mentions the first instance of Massah and Meribah. God has recently set his people free, brought them out of Egypt. Here they're slaves. Here they're being beaten and whipped, given only little rations of food. He frees them through the ten plagues. He leads them through the Red Sea. He's got a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. He closes the waters over the, the chariots, and he saves his people. When the Israelites thirsted, they got grumbly. God sweetened their water and gave them both manna and meat, but yet they grumbled. In chapter 17, the people began to quarrel with Moses because they'd run out of water. And Moses told them they were grumbling against God, and the people threatened to stone Moses. So God tells Moses to strike the rock with his rod, and water gushed out. The people were able to drink, and that place was Massah and Meribah because the people grumbled, contention, and tested God. The second account is found in Numbers 20. Here, only the term Meribah is used. The event is similar to in Exodus, but this one happened nearly 40 years later. When the people were just about to enter the promised land, the people are grumbling and complaining yet again. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God, and his glory appears to them. Now, God instructs Moses to speak to the rock so that water will come out, and instead of obeying God... In anger, Moses scolded the people and struck the rock twice with his rod. While water did come out, God had this against Moses for his unbelief and lack of reverence. Look what, what he says. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, since you did not trust in me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, for that reason you shall not bring the, this assembly into the land which I have given them. As a result, Moses was not allowed to lead the Israelites into Canaan. That's harsh. Because he struck a rock. 
But it was more than just striking a rock. God told him, I need you to speak to it. Last time you struck it, now you speak to it so they know always that it is through me that this is happening. And Moses got mad at them, struck the rock twice, and the water came out. And the people were looking at Moses. Not at God. These two accounts reveal a common problem in every generation, we are all prone to grumble and put God to the test. We gripe and complain. If we be truthful, each of us can be actually very demanding to God and try to coerce Him into doing what we think we want to satisfy our wants. It is not wrong to ask God for help at all. Okay, it's not wrong to ask God for some wants. What we do need to do is be careful about our complaining attitudes. We've got a group of teenagers here and some sprinkled elsewhere. If they come up and say, can I just have a drink? What are you going to do? Turn the volume of the TV up. Can't hear you. If they're going to complain and argue about it, you turn a deaf ear. Nope, I'm not answering that. Why do we think God would want to? Like the Israel in the wilderness, our grumbling proves lack of trust in God. Massah and Meribah are historical events which expose a deep-seated and recurring tendency to become hardened in our hearts towards God, and towards God, and that's why it's here in this Psalms. Don't harden your hearts. As that Meribah, as that Massah, and the word "as" indicates that it was Massah-like or <clears throat> Meribah-like in their attitude. Don't harden your hearts like they did. Don't come to worship like these people thought they were. They were coming with complaints and grumbling in hard hearts, and that is not how you're supposed to come. You need proof? Look at verses 1 through 7. So what then is the message of this psalm? First, we should rejoice by or worship by rejoicing and by reference. Our worship is to be based on God's sovereignty as creator and sufficiency as our, our shepherd. But verses 11, uh, 7 through 11 remind us we must also worship God by a response of obedience. It's more than just shouting a praise or our acts of reverence. Wholehearted obedience is the evidence of true worship. If we worship God as our shepherd, then we follow him because, as it said, we are his sheep. Worship without obedience is worthless to God. If you are unwilling to um, obey God's word, then your worship songs, the voice, the shout, the reverence is worthless. It means nothing. Verse 10 says that it makes God angry. Failure to worship through obedience causes our hearts to harden, which is repulsive to God and then destructive to us. Words without commitment are an abomination to God. How many of us would like to be an abomination to God? 
Yet when we choose to be disobedient and then come to Him in a false pretense of worship, that's really what we are. Leonard Sweet in his book called Aqua Church points out that we like to sing and praise God, but we often don't want to go beyond that. This is what he wrote. Our pews are occupied by people who want to be moved, but who don't want to move. We want to feel it. We want to have the holy goosebumps. We want to know that the music impacted our hearts, but yet we don't want to get up and move. Because if we truly believed what God was saying, if we were truly worshiping the God of salvation, we would not stay in these chairs. We would go out in the world and say, I need you to come see Jesus. We would get off of our spiritual hind ends and actually go live it. If we truly believed it. Let's make sure our worship always leads to action. Let's come on Sundays not wanting to be moved, but with a commitment to hear the marching orders from God and then go carry them out. I want to make two conclusions. Your shirt didn't work, by the way. I want to make two conclusions. First, worship is to be primary. The invitation from God to worship is fundamental. It's basic to our faith. He is worthy of our worship. He seeks people who want to worship Him. And when we fail to worship, our hearts will become hardened, which can lead to disobedience and even discipline from God. Someone said there are two times to praise God and to worship God. When we feel like it and when we don't. Those are the two times you should praise God. In case you didn't get it, that means all the time. So it is to be um, primary. Second, worship is to be persistent. Every day is today with God. Ruth Graham keeps a sign above her kitchen sink that says, Worship services held here three times a day. We can't put off God's invitation. When we do, it's like adding our own peril into our daily schedules. Some of you are waiting for a better time to get serious with God. That is incredibly dangerous. Don't put off what you know to be right. Don't wait. You can never fix your life good enough to be worthy of God. And guess what? He didn't ask you to do that. He said, just come. Won't you come? Don't put off that. The Bible says now is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Not when you get these things right. Now is the time to practice the lifestyle of private and corporate rejoicing, reverence, and response. And this psalm ends with a pretty blunt statement. They shall never enter my rest. Moses and his people were not able to enter the promised land, that place of rest, because their hearts were hardened. Hebrews 3 and 4 apply this psalm to us Christians. I don't have time this morning to jump into that, but I want to encourage you, go read Hebrews 3 and 4. Do that if you want to understand Psalm 95 better. All I'll say there uh, is this. There is still rest for the people of God. Sorry, let me start over. There is rest for us in the end, but we can miss out on that just like the Israelites did. 
God has a promise for us, but we can leave that promise just like those Israelites did and wandered for 40 years and never got to enter into the Canaan. The only way to really find rest is to partake in that relationship with Jesus where you'll find exuberant rejoicing, humble reverence, and an immediate response from God our Savior. Are you tired today? I'm not just because you got an extra hour of sleep or maybe you didn't sleep much. I, are you tired of facing this world? Are you tired of the struggles that keep being placed on your shoulders? Are you so tired because your heart is actually starting to get hard? If so, then change your worship. Change who you worship. Look at the invitation that God has given us right here in Psalm 95. God has given us this invitation to come into his presence. All you need to do is reply. All you need to do is respond. You don't need to fix things. You don't even need to bring a covered dish. That's for the dinner next week, okay? But for salvation, you just need to come. Are you tired of doing it on your own? Then let's really worship our God. Let's stand and pray. God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to have it all perfect. We thank you that we don't have to try and fix it ourselves. But God, we do need to ask forgiveness for not obediently and appropriately responding to you in real worship. Forgive us when we use the excuse, well, it didn't feel like worship. Forgive us when we use the, the lie that it just didn't move us because it wasn't for us, God. It is only for you. And help us all here. Help us to take hold of what you have invited us to be a part of so that we can see what true worship is, which is a reflection of our relationship with you. And God, as we come together to sing one more song, I ask that our hearts would awaken, our minds would shout out the praise of who you are to each one of us. Let us see it and say it and sing it, not just now, but every day of our life. And in Jesus we pray. Amen.